When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Caswell Massey is a prestige beauty company that puts their customers first. First. And they are America's original beauty and fragrance company established actually in Newport, Rhode Island, right here in Little Rhodey in 1752. So to find out more about what Caswell Massey can do for you this uh, very important holiday season and for 20% off of your purchase, uh, any purchase you could think of at Caswell Massey, go to CaswellMassey.com and enter the coupon code OutlanderCast at checkout to get 20 big ones, 20 big percent percentage points off of your purchase. Hello, this is Patricia Barron from Cochabamba, Bolivia, and you're listening to the Outlander cast with the fabulous Mary and Blake. All the way from Providence, Rhode Island, welcome to Outlander Cast. It's a podcast dedicated to the show Outlander on Stars. everybody. Welcome to the listener feedback edition for episode 402. Do no harm. This is normally when Mary says, I'm your host, Mary Lassen. As you know, however, she is very, 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 very sick. Very sick. And she cannot make it to today's episode. So you, unfortunately, are stuck with me. You're stuck with me because for today, I'm your host, Blake Larson, and I'm very happy to be with you guys, and like I said, you are stuck with me for today. Uh, We're going to be doing all of the listener feedback, and hopefully it doesn't suck too much, because Mary here is the real talent, and I am just the jabroni nerd that puts it all together. So hopefully, you and I, we can work on this together, and (laughs) I can make your, your gym excursion, or your car ride, or your travel into work, or maybe you're just cooking dinner at your house, who knows? Hopefully, I can give you a good time while you're doing that. So before we get into the rest of the show, I just want to make sure that you are, in fact, following us and you do subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast catcher that you have. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all with the title Outlander Cast. So make sure you subscribe also to the podcast so that you can get these very special episodes sent to you directly, either to your smartphone, to your computer, to your email system. If you go on YouTube, just click that little bell and we're right there for you. And you also want to become an official member of the Outlander Cast Clan. So just go to OutlanderCastClan.com where you can get all the great benefits and extras this season, like the extra off at, off air after dark podcast episodes that we record on our main podcast night. 
access to uh, special Outlander cast giveaways that we have our highest value giveaways there. And uh, we'll talk about those giveaways a little bit more at the end of this episode, but I just want to make sure that you're all caught up with us and you go to outlandercast.com as well and check out all of the fantastic blogs and articles that we have there in addition to all the previous uh, episodes of Outlandercast and all the fantastic interviews, including one that we just did with Diana Gabaldone. Very proud of that episode. We It was a big team effort on Outlandercast part all of us together and some of our our clan members over at outlandercastclan.com we uh, put together a big list of questions for for diana and it sounds very different from i think a lot of different uh interviews that she has done with various outlets i think we get into some good nuanced stuff that i'm very proud of one other thing i want to mention too before we get into the rest of this episode is that mary and i are also doing a podcast about This Is Us. It's called This Is Us 2. So wherever you consume this podcast, whether it's YouTube or on OutlanderCast.com or whatever, you can consume This Is Us 2, that podcast, uh, by Mary and Blake, my, my, uh, Mary and I, rather, uh, on that particular podcatcher. Whatever podcatcher you do, This Is Us 2 is there. And it's important that you do that because if you do like the show This Is Us, it's actually happening right now. We're in the third season. We're just about a third of the way through. So if you can't get enough of Mary and Blake and uh, you want some more of us in your lives, we are there for you. Actually, just go to maryandblake.com and you'll find all of our podcasts there as well, whether it's for The Leftovers, Gilmore Girls, uh, Outlander, um, This Is Us, or wh- whatever you, whatever we have podcasts and blogs on, it's all there at maryandblake.com. Now, all of the formal stuff is out of the way. Let's get into this bad boy, shall we? God, I love that song. It always makes me feel good doing the listen to feedback because it's a different, different feel, different vibe, different songs. Hey, screw it. We're here. We're having fun. On the website, Arn Kroll came in and said uh, she is from Huntsville, Alabama. The podcast has great analysis. Thank you very much. Uh, she has two little factual tidbits for us. Uh, one, Claire did not use arsenic for Rufus's tea. It was actually aconite, which is monk's hood. Arsenic, which is arsenic oxide poison does not work that fast. If you actually look closely, it says aconite on the bottle. And which is actually a callback to episode 203 when Claire sees a bottle of aconite in Master Raymond's shop and asks him why he has it and that she is not aware of its any medicinal use. In fact, that it's poison. And Raymond seconds that the that and then they discuss the bitter cascara. And of course, that leaves the question, why is it in Claire's medical box now? Excellent point. Number two, you are probably aware of it, but the feud between the Campbells and the McDonald's actually goes back to another really dark episode of the Scottish history, which is the Glencoe Massacre. And uh, we are familiar with that. We will not get into it completely here, but thank you very much for that information. This one comes from Alison Indaburu. She says the great for her was the clock in the title card of the last episode. At first, I was queersome about why they would 
choose that particular imagery, but after watching the episode, I got it on two fronts. One, obviously, was the reference to the time granted to Jamie to Jamie to deliver poor Rufus to the men, and the other slightly more subtle reference was that Claire needed to remember what time she is in. Remember where you are, and remember that you cannot change things the way that you want to. Time is its own entity, and it will not be change no matter what the wishes of us mortals are. She actually explains here how her uh, how her family has been, her parents and her in-laws and cousins, aunt and uncle, many, many friends, and uh, thousands of neighbors uh, were affected by the campfire that's, that was burning and actually still burning in Paradise, California. Uh, so I just wanted to mention here, uh, I'm sorry for your family and everything being displaced. Uh, losing your childhood home, I I can't even fathom that. Uh, but please know that we are here for you, both Mary and I, and also this entire Outlander community. So if you ever feel like you got to talk to somebody, you want to talk to Mary and I, you uh, if anybody has been affected by these wild campfires, man, I it's it's something. It's actually snowing right here in Rhode Island. It's snowing at this very second. So I can't even imagine having these wildfires running through my state, running through my town. But uh, just do know that, Allison, that this Outlander community is here for you. It's a great community, and we're happy to talk to you about stuff. On Facebook, Wendy Seaton says, I seem to be in the minority, but I loved this episode. It was actually five kilts for me. Jamie and Claire had two options. A, accept the land grant and fight for the British. Or B, go see what Aunt Jocasta could offer. As in America the Beautiful, the prospect of River Run looked great at the beginning. Being with family, nice house, ability to be a laird again. But then the reality sets in with the slavery issue. I think it was handled wonderfully, although a horrible subject matter, but it showed the mindset at the time. That was the norm. And you had to abide by the rules or the other landowners would protest. The episode introduced you to new characters, uh, which was amazing casting as always, that we bonded with and we got to see Claire and Jamie show their true selves. Heal, healer, no matter the cost, and fighter protector of the underdogs. I loved the interaction of Claire and Jocasta, who reminded me so much of Jenny. And I loved young Ian and the new character, John Quincy Myers, and their interaction. They should have their own show. <laughs> and, you know, that might be a fun little spinoff, like a little buddy cop kind of episode. Everything happened to prove that option B was no longer an option, and they would have to take option A, which sets up the rest of the season. I would rather them go faster now than the speed through. At the end, there is a lot in this book that has to happen. And Voyager and Drums of Autumn were my two favorite books, and I am loving it so far. And she cannot think of a bad Cynthia Grentit said, This episode was written by the same writer as the infamous Creme de Menthe episode last year, and I think it's obvious that she has never read the books. I will say this was much better than that, than that episode, but both presented the same unreasonable Claire, willing to put everyone else's life at risk to accomplish her own objective. It's not a Claire that I find attractive. Now, Cynthia, here's the thing. I agree with you that this particular Claire, the one who is doing what she finds herself thinking that is best for her, um, is not uh, an attractive Claire. Although, I think within the show's history, 
the Claire that we see in this episode is actually pretty in line with the Claire that we've seen throughout the show. I mean, Claire within the show itself has been quite stubborn, has done things that have put people in danger a lot, whether it's running away from the Scots or getting herself captured. Well, not getting herself captured, but being captured. Or, yes, even risking the lives of when you would think that in creme de menthe she is trying to save these people, that, or a guy that she shouldn't be, she does. And in this case, also, uh, even leaving her daughter, she's putting her daughter in danger by leaving her in the season three. There are many more instances when Claire does things and says things, especially to Blackjack Randall, that she really has no business saying and definitely puts people in awkward positions. So, with that being said, it's not just this episode. It is not just this episode where Claire is making poor decisions. She's made poor decisions throughout her entire run on the show. Now, if you want to argue that the Claire on the show is different from the books, then that is a wholly separate argument. And whether or not Karen Campbell has has read or has not read the books, in my eyes, is irrelevant. It's irrelevant because she has to abide by the rules that have been established by the show. Yes, can she get a flavor of what Claire was like in the book? Is it a good reference point? Of course it is. Of course it's a good reference point. But it's not the only point. In order to write this television show, it is not a requirement that you read the book. Especially even now at this stage. There are three seasons worth of mythology for each writer to build upon. There are three seasons for each writer to take from that character that's already been established within the within the context of the show. So I appreciate what you're saying, Cynthia. I, I'm just not sure if I wholly agree. Donna Antaramian says, I got to listen to, the, to the, your podcast last night and I had the same kilt rating as you, Blake. I, it got that rating not because of the ending and how slavery was handled. That is reality of our American history, sad as it is, and how slaves were treated back then. So I'm glad that the writers were bold enough not to tiptoe around the subject. It got that rating for me because I just saw a rewrite of Creme de Menthe and Claire's actions of putting everyone's lives in harm's way without thinking of those consequences. However, since listening to both you and Mary, you had me looking at the other side, so thank you. We know that Karen Campbell also wrote Uncharted last season, which I really liked. She is about to write episode 412, which is the penultimate episode, so I hope that she does not screw that one up. By the way, if you like Maria Doyle Kennedy, she highly recommends watching Orphan Black, which is on Amazon Prime, and it has all of the six seasons. Tatiana Maslany, who is the main character of that show, plays 11 different characters within that show. I will say, I have been dying to watch that show. I think uh, it's definitely on my list. And, you know, as I've been thinking about this, um, about what we're doing here in, in the show and, and how it was written, you know, I, I think the writers did the best that they could. Am I a huge Karen Campbell fan? 
not really. I'm not a fan of her prior work. Uh, she has worked on a ton of bad television. Um, <laughs> and she even wrote for the final season of Dexter, which if you are a Dexter fan on Showtime, you know that the final two or three seasons are just they're garbage, right? They're garbage, uh, especially the final season. Uh, on which she wrote. Uh, and I'm not saying that she's a bad writer. I'm not. I'm saying that her writing is not as good as I think we have become accustomed to, uh, especially on peak TV, but more specifically Outlander. When when you think about the writing lineup that was on the first season of Outlander between Ann Kenny and, and Iris Stephen Bear and Tony Graffia and Ron Moore writing multiple episodes, and then you had you had a guy like Matt Roberts who was there, who was just, you know, he, he was like a bench player almost. Um when you think of that writer's room, that writer's room is spectacular. It's like the cream <laughs> of the of the writing world. Like it, you know, the the first Outlander season writing staff is is to TV what cream was to music back in the seventies, right? <laughs> um, it was. It's an all star cast, and now it's just a bunch of people. And like in the sports world. We have there's this saying that they're a bunch of jags, right? And, and the a jag is an acronym for just another guy, all right. And a jag is a is a guy who's a body, who's a warm body, who can go in there and and play, you know, at least to a level that is, you know, uh, a, a average, um, and and is easily replaced by another jag at any point in time. I feel like we got a bunch of jags, and. And that's okay. It happens. It just doesn't make for the most compelling writing of all time. And that is also not necessarily the fault of the writers. That is, I think, even more indicative of the showrunner. And here is where things become a little bit more murky. A showrunner should demand the highest of quality writing or directing or costuming or anything. A showrunner is in charge of the show, every facet of that show. And he or she should demand the highest quality of what they can get, whether that is demanding more from the writers that they currently have or the directors that they currently have or getting rid of them and bringing in new blood and filling out the room with people that they know can do a great job. And and where it gets murky is this. Ron Moore is a world-class showrunner. You needn't look any further than Battlestar Galactica to know that. His work on Star Trek is, is spectacular. And obviously his work on Outlander Seasons 1 and 2, and even partly on Season 3, is also spectacular. But he has taken a step back. And we are left with Matt Roberts and Tony Graffia, who uh, I think Tony is a fantastic writer. I think Matt really loves this subject matter and really loves the books and wants to do the best job that he can. But he's not Ron Moore. And neither is Tony Graffia. Not Ron Moore. And this is what happens when you have showrunner changes. And technically, Ron is still a showrunner. But who is running the writer's room? That is 
Matt Roberts, and Tony Graffia. I know Ron must have final say. I'm sure he has final edit. I'm sure he is the one who's directing a lot of things, but he is now doing his own thing. And as a matter of fact, he's already developing another television show for when Apple comes out and they're having their own what we could consider Netflix type streaming service. It will be Apple and it will be free for all Apple users. Uh, Well, if you have Apple TV, it will be free. And Ron is developing his own television show. He is going to be the showrunner and he's doing it right now. And he's splitting time. And, and, And this is a big conversation here. Would the episode have been better if Ron Moore was the showrunner? I don't know. Like, if he was the active showrunner that he was in season one. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. But maybe not. I, I, I'm just, I'm not exactly sure. So, I, I think the writers for this particular episode did the best that they could. They got themselves into a little bit of trouble with it being, I think, a little predictable. And I think the subject matter is difficult when it comes to slavery. And I also think that when it comes down to that, when it comes down to that kind of subject matter, you have to play it with a very fine-tuned instrument. And you need to give it its due. And so you have two options here, right? You have you, The first option is to just get through it. And make it all about plot. Like, for example, we were talking about on the, on the first podcast, we were saying, Mary and I were saying, you know, at least she told me within the book, that Rufus's death does happen, but it's not as big of a deal. It's more about Claire and Jamie and how they figure out the politics of the situation. They spend a lot of time at um, at uh, River Run, and you get to know more of the relationships between the people and how and Claire becomes more close to Phaedra and, and the whole thing. You, you can either do that and spend multiple episodes at River Run and make it all plot, 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 plot and spend time with all of them and slow the season way down. Remember, consider where we are in the season. We are only in the second episode. If you bog yourself down in one setting that doesn't have a whole ton to pertain at least from what I'm told, to the rest of the season necessarily, what are we doing? It reminds me of actually season two of The Walking Dead. For those of you who are Walking Dead fans, they got bogged down in the farm with Herschel and Maggie and, and all of those people. They got bogged down and they got stuck there. And it took forever to get them up because they just kept, they kept trying to force feed these relationships down our throats. And it was boring as hell. So you have that option. Or the second option is get through what we got to get through. Show that Rufus's death, show Rufus's death and show how it affects Claire and Jamie. Root that death into that one character and solidify that death and give us a different perspective through the eyes of very, uh, very um, easily and very succinctly through the eyes of other characters like Jocasta and Ulysses. You make it smaller so that you can root it in that character, 
Rufus, telling her, telling Claire and Jamie about his sister, night fishing, so on and so forth, and then put it through the eyes of Claire and Jamie, but also how it affects Ulysses and Jocasta. If you notice, they do this very, um, they do this very purposely, because Claire and Jamie are the ones that we are following. We, we, we know we're not going to stay in River Run that much longer. So if you stick with them, even when Rufus is getting hanged, they're not lingering on Rufus. Probably because it's it's shocking imagery. Nobody wants to see someone getting lynched. But they do show him getting dragged. They do show him going up in the tree. But the main focus is Claire and Jamie, our protagonists, the people through who we see this story. Their reactions are what is most important. Their uh, their ability to see what's happening is what's most important. Not necessarily that Claire is getting involved with Phaedra. Not necessarily that Ulysses is doing whatever. It's Claire and Jamie making this decision and trying to find the humanity in Rufus to give us and an, an evoke an emotional response. Not spending three months at River Run, having time jumps, because you can't do three months at River Run in one episode. You cannot do it. And you don't want to go more than one episode because you're going to get stuck. So they had to make this choice. Do we stay here or do we get through what we need to get through, humanize it, and move forward? And I feel like what they did is more, is more indicative of the second option. Right now, I wanted to talk to you uh, about Caswell Massey because I wanted to remind you that this episode was brought to you by Caswell Massey. They are, like I said, the prestige beauty company that truly, really, honestly, do put their customers first. I mean, and and here it is. Here, here. This is the big deal. It's the holiday season. You know, you got that father-in-law. You know, you got the mo- you know you got the mother-in-law. That's got everything. You you don't know what to get them. Oh, you know, you know, you got that brother or sister that just like anything you get them, it just sucks. <laughs> right? Go to Caswell Massey. Go to CaswellMassey.com and check them out because they have a variety of gift sets to suit pretty much any one of those people on that list. I mean, the whether it's the Supernatural number 6 premium shaved gift set with a double-edged razor, by the way, a premium shaved brush, a full-size tin of their brand new coconut oil based number six scented shave soap and a travel size number six fragrance i've been talking about this number six forever i've been talking about it forever and i'm telling you i wear it i even got my dad to wear it it's unbelievable it smells incredible if you want someone special in your life to just smell that good you get this for them you get the fragrance discovery sets which comes from four unique fragrances from every collection the Centuries line gift sets, which it comes, it has the sandalwood gift set, gift set we're actually giving away at the end of this week, and more. So each gift set comes in a beautiful, ready-to-give gift box. There's no wrapping necessary at all. So to find out what more Caswell Massey can do for you this holiday season and for 20% off of your purchase, visit CaswellMassey.com and enter the code OutlanderCast at checkout. And also follow them at, at Caswell Massey on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's all there. All right, guys, for the emails, this one comes from Erin. She says, 
I rarely disagree with Blake. He's a super smart guy, thank you, and is very adept at communicating his thoughts and knows what good writing looks like. I'm a big fan of his, which is why I'm surprised that I actually disagree with him three times this week, and I will hope I'll at least get an interesting for my thoughts. Well, you already have an interesting, and touche, Aaron, thank you very much for uh, sending this email. I think um, we're going to get into it. Let's see what we got. The first was in Blake's GBG that the characters were in the same place at the end of the episode when they started. Claire, Jamie, and likely every member of the audience went into that episode 100% secure in the belief that we would never be a party to slavery, that we would never be observers to such exploitation and abhorrence. Then Claire invoked her doctor's vow, Jamie claimed someone under his protection, and both of them came crashing to the realization that their respective superpowers counted for nothing at River Run, causing them to drastically change the way they navigate this new world that they didn't give that crisis of conscience enough time to breathe is, is my B in the GBG. Claire and Jamie went from being ready to single-handedly abolish slavery a century early Something that I'd argue was way bigger than the Jacobite Rebellion in scale to feeling like they're as powerless over the situation as Rufus himself. And if Jamie and Claire, of all people, were powerless, what could we possibly have done if we were in their shoes? The fact that the writers evolved not just characters in this way, but the entire audience is an incredible feat. Without getting into spoilers or comparisons with the book, the writers needed us to believe that Jamie and Claire are fairly powerless in order to accept the rest of the story. So I will address this first one right now. Uh, Aaron, nice try. (laughs) Uh, A nice try. uh, And listen, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. I am going to say this. If what you said was correct, you would have to assume that Claire and Jamie would have no knowledge of slavery. Well, at least, at the very least, Claire. And within the context of the story, they already have knowledge of slavery. They already know about it because they ran into it in Jamaica. And they are, we already knew that they abhor slavery. And since Claire is already well aware of U.S. history and the fact that she is in uh, the U.S., well, at least the colonies at this point, Claire is very well aware of that there is slavery in the United, well, in the colonies at this time. She isn't ignorant of that. Had she been ignorant of it and only heard about it, she could go into it saying, I abhor slavery. I'm never going to take part in it. But she's well aware that she's in the colonies at this time, which is rife with slavery, especially in the South. She already knows her American history. She, we know that because she talks about it in America the Beautiful. That being said, to abhor slavery and then feel powerless to stop it isn't an arc. That's just a mechanic of the plot. That is not an emotional response to a character growth. It's simply put there so that they can move from one place to the next. What I mean is this. Claire abhors slavery. We already know that from day one. We knew that from we knew that in Jamaica, the way she she talked to the people that was there. We already know that when she talks to Jocasta the way that she does. She does not change her view on slavery. She still abhors it at the end of the episode. Her feeling powerless isn't a character trait. 
it isn't something that she grew out of. She already knows that she cannot change history. She knows that because of what happened in the Jacobite Rebellion. She didn't change it then, and both she and Jamie acknowledge the fact that they can't change history, and they cannot change. Jamie is the one who says, maybe we can spark it, blah, blah. And then Claire is the one that looks at him like, oh, honey, no, 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 no. So since she's already well aware that she cannot change slavery, she can't stop it. She isn't going to, she isn't going to abolish it in her own time frame. Then that isn't growth. That's just self-awareness. And if they already have that self-awareness, then they're not growing. They didn't get changed in any significant way by the end of the episode as it pertains to slavery. And yes, you're right. Slavery, I think, is a much bigger topic and a much more uh, hard subject than it would be than the Jacobite Rebellion. Okay, the second place I disagree with Blake was that Claire finally saw the consequences for her choices. If we've all decided that Claire's hands were tied, then the only consequence I saw that was that her actions made Jocasta a little saltier than usual. If you squint, you could say her actions put River Run at risk, but Claire didn't really feel the impact of that. Jocasta did, hence her saltiness. You could also say that Claire will experience intense grief to know her actions made the lives of Jocasta's slaves and those on nearby plantations more difficult, but she won't be the one actually bearing the brunt of those consequences, especially if they take uh, Tryon's offer and put the whole unsavory business out of sight and out of mind. It's an intense disappointment that Rufus ended up almost exactly where Claire first found him despite her actions, but it's not a consequence if we buy that it was outside of her control. And see... Uh, um, I actually kind of agree with you on this one. I see where you're coming from, but you can't say this and then have what you said in the first paragraph. Uh, th- they can't coexist, right? If if something's out of her control, then she's powerless. And if she's powerless, then she isn't growing, right? <laughs> and that's the case. And you you can't have one and then have the other. Either she is powerful and has the ability to change or she's powerless and has no ability to change. And having said that, um, I would say that her actions, she does feel consequence in that. And well, maybe, I mean, you know, I think there is, I think there's some truth to what you're saying here because her actions don't necessarily change her. Thereby, she isn't feeling the impact of those changes. She's only seeing somebody die. The only change or the only consequence that she undergoes is the fact that she has to knowingly and willfully relinquish or she has to knowingly and willingly go against her oath of doing no harm, right? She has to knowingly and willfully kill somebody. That's something that she feels the consequence of. She did it. And taking one's life after saving them is a consequence. That's a choice that she has to make. So I would say, uh, I think it, that that too there is murky. Finally, Blake made some good points regarding the whole white saviordom criticism of this final episode of this episode it's a fact that both claire and diana are white women in the 20th and 21st century and that's the source material the writers were working with that said it doesn't mean we can't recognize this criticism as valid and talk about why it's problematic we as the audience watched claire do her wonder woman best and still fail in a way that feels pretty absolving 
for us as mostly white suburban middle class white people who are probably fairly similar in political and moral beliefs. We watched her make decisions for others in a way that, while admirable, were pretty paternalistic. She has an opportunity to recognize that this during her conversation with Ulysses, but she seems to decide that she knows better. And when Jamie makes what is essentially the same argument, Jamie apparently knows best. So I get that she doesn't know Ulysses from Adam. So the fact that Jamie's words landed with more weight isn't necessarily racially charged. But with what a great opportunity to forge a connection between Claire and Ulysses, while also course-correcting our trip down White Savior Road. The show writers took great liberties elsewhere to tighten up the story in this episode. Why couldn't one of them have been Ulysses, Phaedra, or Rufus himself, serving as the catalyst for her ultimate decision instead of Jamie? Blake mentioned that he liked that Rufus didn't give Claire a free pass by, say, by saying, kill me. But what if it wasn't a free pass, but rather a decision he made of his own agency in spite of Claire's feelings on the subject? Here is what I will say. Rufus not giving Claire the go-ahead to kill him, I think that's problematic. Uh, would it have been nice if Rufus made that decision? Yes. I. He gives some kind of consent by by saying the words, Claire or, or something like that like he after he was clearly aware that the two Jamie and 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 um, Claire are having a conversation about his about his life and he kind of eases her decision process by saying like Claire or something or mistress I can't remember what it was but it was like an acknowledgement of like a it, it, it went unsaid I think the whole white savior thing, um, I think it's it's a conversation to be had, but I think that is, it's inevitable in this kind of story. And if you want to criticize the show for it, I think it's a valid criticism. That means you would also have to criticize the book for it, which I think is a valid criticism. I just think that given that we already know that we're going to be in a problematic area, I think it's not worth our time. I just, I don't. I don't think it's worth our time to sit here and and wave our finger from the ivory tower and say, this is white savior. It's like, it's going to happen no matter what you do. It's going to happen with a, a, a white main character dealing with uh, uh, eth- eth- other ethnic uh Races, it's it's going to happen no matter what, especially when your main character is white and that's the protagonist and we, we want the protagonist to do good things. It, it's going to happen. So I, I just, I don't think it's it's worth our time to, to argue about it. Well, not argue, but to, I don't think it's worth our time to converse and, and make ourselves feel bad and look down on the show for it. They're clearly not being racist. They're clearly not saying that white people are the best and not, it, it's, it's, it's just not that. If you wanted to talk about white savior and you wanted to to get into that, talk about twenty four. Now, if you want to talk about white savior and, and America and and conservatives and all that other crap, twenty four is the show where you would want to talk about that. Outlander is not the one. They, the writers are obviously liberal in nature, which is fine. You know, uh, Mary and I are are liberal. I'm I'm fiscally conservative, but we're both socially extremely liberal. Uh, and that's the whole point, right? Uh, like for for us and for whoever out there is socially conservative or whatever, that's fine. But the writers clearly are liberal, uh, socially liberal, and 
that and that's just an affectation of the writing that they've already shown. They've already made it a point to be like, man, slavery is bad. They've made it so that Claire is wildly opposed to it, as is Jamie. He's concerned for the Native Americans. I just think talking about white saviordom and all that whole thing is just it's just nonsense uh, because the writers don't have this ulterior motive. Uh, Kathy writes in, says, hi, Mary and Blake. Wanted to talk about something that I'm a, that I'm actually a physician, and one of the things I find interesting about the books and the show is seeing Claire manage to care for people who have 18th century notions of health and to do it with 18th century resources. Sometimes it takes a healthy dose of willful suspension of disbelief, but it's usually pretty entertaining. Not so in this episode. It was, in a word, appalling. One of the most important things a surgeon needs to know, maybe the most important thing, is when you should have to take someone to surgery and when you should not. These decisions are never easy. Admitting anything you have to offer will ultimately be futile is really hard, but it comes with the territory. Last season in Heaven and Earth, Claire herself talked about the need to compartmentalize and separate herself from her emotions in order to make this hard decisions. Yet, in this episode, she threw all of that out the window and made reckless, dangerous, and medically inappropriate decisions because she was completely governed by her emotions. In short, she was practicing bad medicine. And her bad decisions have repercussions for everyone, not just her patient. While one could argue that the societal and political factors were the only reasons she could not save Rufus, medicine has never existed in a vacuum. It is always constrained by laws, institutional policies, and societal norms. We have all done things we didn't want to because, in quotes, those are the rules. And yeah, sometimes it sucks. Knowing that he would be executed regardless, Claire put him through an operation which was not only futile, but cruel. I don't care how they portrayed it. Abdominal surgery without general anesthesia is cruel. And she did it to assuage her own guilty conscience. She eventually delivers him a less unpleasant death, but only at Jamie's urging, as though she can't bear to admit she can't save him. Talk about a savior complex. I call foul. I've been asking myself why the writers would choose to present Claire in this way. Did they think it made her look more compassionate? Do they think that we want to see Super Claire Medicine Woman? Was it just a plot device to trigger the anger of the overseers? Whatever the reason, it's going to take a while for me to wash the taste of this one out of my mouth. Pask the whiskey, please. Uh, listen, Kathy, I, I'm, not, I'm going to defer any medical knowledge to you. I am far from a doctor, so I have no idea, even with that, even with the oath, all that other stuff. I, I mean, I get it logically, but just the, the pull of it, I don't, I don't get it. Um, the one thing I will say here is I think a lot of this rides, uh, a lot of your, your, um, Emotion rides on the idea that Claire was fully well aware that she was not going to be able to save him regardless because he was going to get hanged or lynched rather. I think there's a debate there. I think she went into it thinking that she he was not going to get lynched. I think that she thought that he was going to get out of it. Uh, and it was only until Jamie said, I got until midnight, kid, and that's it. They're going to burn this place down. She started to save him, and Jamie helped her trying to save him. So I, I wonder if we look at it as though Claire did what she did because that was the medical thing to do, uh, to save somebody, without thinking fully, without without accepting the societal norm of the time. 
I think she thought she could get him away from that and or maybe not even consider it or just saying I'm saving them and, and I'm not even giving thought to the repercussions after that. I think there's an argument to be made there. This one comes from Virginia. She says, The great in this episode was a hard pill to swallow, but it gave us exactly what we needed. If Claire and Jamie were hesitant about accepting Tryon's offer because it would set them up to be on the wrong side of the American Revolution, what's the alternative? The episode set up Riveron with all the idyllic beauty of Tara with horror lying just below the pretty facade. The descent from optimism into the sickening reality of slavery made it crystal clear that accepting ownership of hundreds of people would truly put Claire and Jamie on the wrong side of history. And the subversion of the white savior trope was refreshing. Wow, imagine this. We got all these people talking about white savior syndrome. Uh, Yes, Claire could have healed Rufus, but couldn't save him without harming all of the River Run slaves, as Ulysses makes devastatingly apparent. We finally have an episode where the very real problem of racism in the colonies is actually grappled with rather than portrayed as an exotic backdrop or fodder for blasé dinner table banter as we've suffered through in the past. Yes, I agree. In season three, it was definitely just dinner table banter. Outlander's treatment of race has often left me with a bad taste in my mouth, and my impulse is that this episode finally gives due weight to some of these issues. But of course, I'm a white lady, and try as I might, I can't divorce that from my viewpoint. People of color who are show watchers and are book readers, what would be your opinions? I would love to know. I would love to know. I would say that what they did as writers is probably the best that they could do. Uh, given the time constraints that they have. Like I said in the first episode, this is not Roots, okay? They don't have the time to give it its full due diligence. They have to pick and choose. And they what they did was they picked Rufus and they said, we're going to attach emotionality to Rufus. And we're going to show Claire and Jamie's reactions. And we're going to show the repercussions of those actions on Jamie and Claire through their eyes because those are our protagonists. Those are the people who we are um, following and who we truly care about. Lynn Henderson on OutlanderCastClan.com says, Mary and Blake, a great episode as always. Thank you. I really enjoyed your insights on the similarities between Do No Harm and Creme de Menthe. However, I was intrigued by Blake's take on Aunt Joe Castor during his outlandish theory. Now, I am a book reader, so I will tread carefully here, but because I too believe that there's more than meets the eye here with Joe Casta. But for me, it wasn't anything the character did or said, but rather how... She said it. It took me a couple of viewings to figure it out, but it's her voice. At times, she sounds like she is using vocal fry or up talk. It's like when you talk like this and like just yeah, that's what vocal fry is. Um, da, 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 as her register seems to change. At times, it's deeper and often and uh, sometimes higher. She even raises her voice at the ends of words and sentences. And at first I thought that maybe the actress was simply having trouble managing the Scottish accent, which seems strange to me as I'm familiar with Maria Doyle Kennedy's work, and she has been excellent in everything that I've seen her in. I would agree. You should see, you should hear her Spanish accent in The Tudors. It's fantastic. But the more I watch this episode, the more I'm convinced that this was a deliberate choice by the actress. Her voice seemed to take on more girlish quality at times when it was advantageous for the character to appear naive, innocent, or harmless. However, when things got serious, her voice deepened. Seems to me that there is quite a bit of Mackenzie in this one. 
And she's able to use something as simple as her voice to disarm the men and women around her. And I'm completely fascinated by Jocasta in a way that I never was in the book. I'm simply amazed at MDK portrayal of this character. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this. MDK brought it, and she always does bring it. I've always loved her uh, her her portrayal, and I think you're I think you're right, and mainly because you agree with me. <laughs> so uh, let's get to the voicemails that we got. Hello from the Islands of Scotland. It's Kirsten Lang here, giving you my take on the episode. Oh, this one left us fair puggled emotionally through the ringer, but it wouldn't be true to Diana's books if it wasn't thought provoking and challenging to watch at times. The good. Aunt Jocasta, you can't get a thing past her. A lady with a backbone of steel and the skills of a mind reader. And River Run is just full of layered characters bristling with promise. The bad, I'm going to call it Thrawn Tennis. That's a word we use in Scotland, daily in my house, that means another level of stubbornness, pig-headed to the point of someone would cut off their nose to spite their face. Mm-hmm. Now, Jamie, in the scene where he's been telt about the reality of freeing River Run's slaves, Thrawn, jeez, oh, no matter what Farfar Campbell said, he stood his ground, batting a reply back and forth, back and forth. Thrawn Tennis, now you listening, that doesn't usually end well. And the great, the Rufus storyline, was just wonderful. The moment he van Gogh that overseer, his time was up. But the portrayal of the events that followed were beautifully executed and extremely amusing. And it reminds us that it isn't always the right time to do the right thing. That's all from me. Cheerio for now. Thank you, Kirsten. Thank you very much for calling in. It's funny, you know, people... I, this episode was one of those episodes, either you really, really effing hated it or you loved it. It, like there's no in between <laughs> and uh and people like it for all different reasons people hate it for all different reasons so uh i, I think it's incredible hey mary and blake it's angela hickey i give this episode four kilts i wanted to commend you on putting together an insightful and very balanced podcast on such a difficult sensitive week mary i hope you're feeling better i really loved your observation connecting jocast and column operating with a disability and maintaining their sharp wit command and strength I would say that Jocasta does, in fact, need a man in this time, even though she hates that she does. Blake, you made so many great points. What you said about the message throughout that this is the law and that's the perspective is very on point. Your comparison of 307 in this episode, give yourself a bam there. Great stuff. (laughs) And for what it's worth, I'm not on the Casey train at all. Loved your observation about the soul-lifting camera shot on Rufus. Wow, you're so good at perceiving messages in camera shots. It must be the artist in you. On your theory, remember she didn't come alone. Hector only died a year or two ago. Actually, this is why she's in this bind and needed Jamie. As a widow with now with no heirs, every snake like Lieutenant Wolf is clamoring for her hand so they can take River Run. This was barely alluded to in the show. But if she died with no husband or heir, the estate would go to the crown, which, of course, she would never want. Lastly, Blake, let me say one thing. If you want repercussions and consequences of choices made, hold on, Spider Monkey. This is your season big time. See ya. (laughs) Thank you, Angela. Uh, I imagine I I always want repercussions. I always want change. That's the entire point of why we watch these shows, uh, to watch the characters that we love and to see them change, to see them navigate situations and whenever those choices are made change happens and repercussions are felt so thank you angela thank you for all the uh thank you for everything i really appreciate it and this one is for you Bam. Just like that. A winner. 
There you go. I, I gave it to myself at the behest of one Angela Hickey. We got some more. And by the way, just want to let you guys know that Kirsten and Angela called in on SpeakPipe. Uh, that's why the uh, the audio was fantastic. If you go to outlandercast.com, there's a button that says engage. Hit the engage button and it's and then a drop down will happen and it will say call us. Hit that button that says call us and you'll see an option for uh, speak pipe. Uh, and that's what gives us the beautiful sound. Uh, and it's the one I, I do prefer you guys call into because it just does sound great. It's more pleasing to the ear. However, we do have some more voicemails that come on the hotline. And this is also acceptable as well. We love when people call in. So just give us a call on the hotline if you don't like speak, speak pipe, which would go through your computer or your smartphone or whatever. Call us on the hotline over the telephone. And the number is 503-454-6730. And here they are. Well, hi, Mary Blake. This is Linda from Leesburg, Florida. I wrote my first ever comment on your website last week and was so excited when you read it on your listener feedback. Hey, Thank right. you so much for that. I think I'm going to love being part of this conversation. Thank you. have to say first, Mary, love the Rumpy Pumpy. Much prefer it to Lynette Rice's Hibbity Bibbity. <laughs> and I don't even know if I got that right. Hibbity Dibbity. So here we are a week later. I did not like 402 very much when I first watched. I had issues with parts of the story and the dialogue seemed slow to me and made the acting off. Watched a couple more times now and the episode has grown on me a bit. Think maybe that I didn't understand half the dialogue the first time, but then picked up much more of it with each rewatch. Anyway, think I'll give this four kilts and leave it at that. No GBG, as I'm still having mixed feelings about it and haven't quite sorted it out yet. Actually, I'd like to comment on something else I've noticed. In the first six episodes of season three, I felt they really took their time. And I think we all know how totally amazing Outlander can be when they can do that. But then it inevitably makes much of the back half of the season seem rushed. Season four, I think, is going to be opposite. There are 880 pages in my book, Drums of Autumn book. Oh, my God. (laughs) Divide that by 13, and you average 68 pages per episode. Okay, so I better mention, I'm a numbers nerd. (laughs) Mm -mm, No apologies. So in just two episodes, they have already covered 200 pages of the book, and I think they've done an awesome job so far in picking out the important events. They've crammed in a lot, but also left out a lot. This makes me really happy because I think it means they are going to take their time with the back half of this season, which in my opinion is where the meat and potatoes of this book resides. I think it's all going to be totally awesome. Well, thanks for listening. I'll try not to get so nerdy, number nerdy in the future, (laughs) but no promises, Sassanak. Oh, my Lord. I so had Sam's voice in my head when I said that. <laughs> anyway, bye for now. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. And I'll tell you, uh, if you're a nerd, it is always welcome for you to be a nerd here. This is this is the this is the kingdom of nerds, as I would like to call it, or the clan. This is the clan of nerds, okay? So however much nerdy you want to be, you are more than welcome to be nerdy here. Hi, Mary Blake. This is Keisha calling from Odenton, Maryland, about episode 402, Do Nay Harm. Um, I'm a book reader. I've read all eight books 
at least twice and listen to them on audiobook. Wow. So just seeing this season come to life is makes me happy anyway. I get all warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> um, I know that episodes one and two are going to be the setup, quote unquote. So we're introducing the conflict, um, more than one conflict we see, and that's going to propel us into, you know, the, the Damien Claire Ridge life. Um, which has other conflicts that we shall see. Um, so I'm not going to be very critical at this point. I'm just going to watch. Can't wait week to week. Um, I take naps on Saturday just so I can be up at midnight to watch that <laughs> next episode and then watch it again when I wake up and watch it again at 8. So I love your, your podcast. I'm so glad Outlander's back and can't wait to hear um, your thoughts on the next episode. Have a good one. Well, we love you as a listener, and we love that you love listening to us, and uh, and we're happy to be here talking about these episodes. I think you said something that's kind of prescient, which is the first two episodes are set up. Now, when you come to these kind of episodes and these, these seasons that are structured into 13 episodes, you have to look at it like this. The premiere of the episode, is, of the season rather, is something that's unto itself. Right, There are 13 episodes, and the premiere is unto itself. It has to reintroduce you to all the characters, or it has to introduce you to characters, and it has to introduce you to a new setting. Uh, that's its purpose. It's there to hold your hand and say, hey, remember us? We're back. Then you start introducing the normal formulas of telling stories. Now, there usually there are the stories can usually and normally be broken up into three acts. There are some stories that can be broken up into five acts or even some stories that are broken up into seven acts. But for the most part, when it comes to these 13 episode seasons, you are stuck with three acts. The first act being the introduction act, the second act being the conflict act, and then the third act being the resolution act. Or not resolution, but just the, you know, bringing everything to a conclusion, if you will, for the most part. So if the first episode is the premiere, which we have can all accept that it's just the reintroduction, it's the re-entry point for us. The second episode is the beginning, the true beginning of our story. And if we are set here in River Run, and we are given a small conflict that sets our characters in motion to where they need to go, to go to where they need to go, they did that job, and and it, it, they're doing their job, and they did do that. So yes, this is set up. It's just propelling our characters into motion, which again is why it's important that our characters move on fast, because if you get stuck you're rooting yourself in mud in this first important episode, which is the beginning of the first act, right? And if you look at if you look at it mathematically, you have the first episode, then you have episodes two through five, which represent the first act. The second act is represented by episodes six through episode nine. And then you have episodes 10 through 13 being the conclusion act. So if you look at it again this this is this is just the very beginning of our story and we need to move on quickly. So I'm I'm happy for how they handled it. Hello, this is Anne from Denver. I'm calling about the Do No Harm episode for Outlander. 
I think we were able to condense a long portion of the book into one episode that ended up making a lot of sense to what needed to be done in order for Jamie and Claire to move on to the ridge. I did enjoy Maria, Maria Doyle Kennedy as Jocaster. She played it so well. Um, I only know her from the TV show Orphan Black, and she has taken over Aunt Jocasta and has made it really work. And as for John Bell, he just keeps impressing me with um, as young Ian, and his relationship with Lolo is great. Just um, I just keep saying, just keep staying away from skunks. <laughs> Blake, I did see what you mean uh, about the twin episode of Creme de Mint. Thanks for pointing that out to me. You're welcome. I am looking forward to what comes next in the season and bring on the ridge. Have a good day. Thanks. Thank you for calling in. Yes, bring on the ridge. I think that's something that I'm looking forward to seeing. And that does it for our episodes. We had someone else call in earlier uh, as well, but their their voicemail. If you didn't hear your voicemail and you know you called in, uh, it's because your message uh, was all broken up, and um, and we couldn't we couldn't put it on the air for you. Uh, but that does it for this listener feedback episode. As always, I do want to remind you that uh, this was brought to you by Caspel Massey. Go do check them out. They got so many great products and. You know you got so many freaking presents to buy. It's holiday season. Holiday season sucks. I mean, it's great, but it sucks because of all the pressure and everything. And I'm telling you, you go to Caswell Massey, check it out. The pressure will be taken off. It's high quality stuff. I like. I, I put that number six on today. It was at six in the morning. I had to get ready for work. Six in the morning. I, I'm still smelling it on me. Like it's it, like I just put it on me. I'm telling you, it's 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 worth its weight in gold. It's it's fantastic. If you're into colognes and all their soaps and all that stuff, check it out. Really good. Uh, but let's do, let's do this for now. Let's uh, let's close it out and. Uh, <laughs> I'll end your torture for you dealing with me this entire episode. <laughs> I'm closing this show out, so do check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Smoke Signals, MySpace, all, all of it. We're, we got it all. It's all under the name Outlander Cast. And if you go to Outlander Cast Clan, you can become a supporter of the show and an official Outlander Cast Clan member. Uh, that community there is spectacular. Please do go check it out. Go to outlandercast.com and check out uh, the the website there with all of our great articles and uh, great podcasts, interviews, you name it, we, we got it there too. We've become this massive Outlander outlet. Uh, we're, I think, probably one of the biggest on the on the interwebs right now, and it's <laughs> remarkable, and it's it blows me away every single day. It humbles me every single day in one form or fashion. Uh, or another, uh, having our friendships and our our communications, our emails, all of that stuff with you guys, the listeners, it it, uh, it warms my heart. And it, trust me, if we don't get back to you immediately, we get a lot of emails and we get a lot of messages. And uh, I do the best that I can to get back to every single one of you as fast as I can. Uh, but you know, <laughs> life's crazy, especially when you got two sick kids and a and a, and a sick wife that. 
I, I dote over and I make it my mission to make sure she's okay in life. Um, so, uh, I, I just work, bear with me <laughs> in this crazy season. And uh, as I, I mentioned earlier, I do want you to go check out maryandblake.com uh, and also check us out on, on Facebook, Mary and Blake. There we have all uh, TV news, uh, movie news, nerdy things, uh, and just it's a good community to be a part of. Uh, and it, it covers all of our podcasts and all of our blogs. So the Mary and Blake Facebook page is is a lot of fun. Uh, Great interaction for all nerdy things in television and movies. And maryandblake.com, again, houses all of our podcasts, including This Is Us 2, which is a podcast dedicated to This Is Us on NBC. Check it out. If you like This Is Us and you like Mary and Blake, I think you'll be happy. Uh, it's, It's one of my favorite podcasts we've done. Uh, and I, I have a lot of, I have, I enjoy doing it quite a bit. So as for now, ladies and gents, this is not Mary Larson. This is Blake Larson. And you've been listening to Outlander cast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.